Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. You're listening to C103's Cork Today podcast. Phone and text lines are currently closed. A very good morning uh, to you on this Thursday as we welcome you along. Let me start by quickly going to the new Aldi store in Canturk, which has had its official opening uh, this morning. And uh, we're delighted to say the, C- the C103 Street fleet were along for the official uh, opening. And let's see how it's all going. I'm joined by uh, Ken Parrott. Thanks, Patricia. And welcome back to Aldi in Canturk, now open in Percival Street in Canturk. It's the 25th Aldi open in Cork. It's the 160th across Ireland. They've just created 30 permanent jobs here in Canturk as well. So it's a good news story. There's been loads of people in and out and mulling around across the morning. We've had loads of prizes to give away. And I can tell you now, Aldi in Canturk is officially open. Good luck to everyone involved. Congratulations to the guys here. They've been fabulous to us all morning. And well done to all the gang. Now open at Aldi in Canturk. I'm Ken Parrott with the Street Fleet on C103. And thanks to all of the Street Fleet for their work this morning. And best of luck to everybody in Aldi. I mean, fantastic to think of 30 new uh, jobs. Uh, Very welcomed boost uh, indeed. RTE, where does one start? Now, we will be talking in a couple of minutes with Crystal West Cork Doll Deputy Christopher O'Sullivan because he is a member of the Media Aroxas Committee. But looking down through uh, the papers uh, today, all you can really think of when you're looking at all of the different expenses and the money was spent it's all got remnants of Celtic Tiger type 
spending, you know, elaborate days out to go to concerts, to go to restaurants, to go to the top sporting events. And of course, the one that we touched on before we signed off yesterday, because the word broke about these flip flops that were uh, bought. And I think it's worked out at 25 euro a pair for uh, flip flops. And I don't think uh, I've ever in my life purchased a pair of flip flops that I've paid 25 euro for, because I think traditionally flip flops by their nature are something you wear at the beach or if you're going away on holidays you'll have them by the pool and they're not something that you spend a lot of money on because you're not going to be in them very long. How often have you been on holidays and when you're trying to pack to come home and the flip-flops get left behind? If you're by the pool at the end of the day, the amount of people that just leave flip-flops behind. So I can never see the reason of buying designer label flip-flops, but maybe some people do and maybe some people love their designer label flip-flops. But why you would want them as part of a giveaway at a beach party, I can't uh, quite uh, understand. But I suppose... What has come out from RTE when you're spending somebody else's money, you don't seem to question really, is there a cheaper way to get those uh, flip flops? Uh, I think that's got to be a lot of uh, the problem. But I tell you, the one that I really uh, like, while that's angered, I mean, we had a lot of angry texts and calls came in at the close of the programme yesterday when I mentioned the 5,000 on the uh, flip flops. But As the day went on and as I listened and I sat watching from half one yesterday and I stuck with it until it wound up at at 10 to 7 yesterday, what struck me was uh, I was thinking, I wonder how the ordinary rank and file members of RTE are uh, feeling. It's got to be really, really galling uh, for them. And the RTE Journalists Union branch they have absolutely reacted with uh, fury, particularly after it emerged that the station spent over €8,000 over four years for the annual membership to a private club in London. It's the exclusive Soho Club that I'm led to believe that Prince Harry and Meghan, when they're in London, they often use this exclusive Soho Club if they want to have meetings because obviously there's a lot of privacy at some of these private member uh, clubs. But nobody knew that RTE had had a membership uh, to this club. But what has really galled the RT's education correspondent, Emma Kelly, and of course Emma is the head of the NUJ for the broadcasters in Dublin. When she got to hear about the hiring of this club in uh, London, she said what you have to contrast is between the lavish spending by the executive board and how the ordinary staff have been treated during the years where they were renting and had the membership of this club. And she said it's absolutely staggering. And she said while the broadcaster was paying for a private members club, at the same time, the London correspondent, uh, a journalist by the name of Fiona Mitchell, she was forced to use cafes as a workspace to report on Brexit because at that stage, on a cost-cutting measure, RTE had given up their office in London. So the London correspondent didn't have an office to go to. So she was using cafes to try and you know type up what she needed to, to type up. She was also forced to use toilet facilities in cafes and restaurants to try to find a quiet space to record a voice for TV or a voice or to send back as a radio uh, report. So M.O. Kelly said, we were sickened to hear money was spent on pop concerts and other 
hospitality and perks, including, she quoted, unbelievably, 200 pairs of flip-flops at a cost of €25 each. Emma Kelly said staff were furious uh, to read of exaggerated special allowances being given to those already highly paid, including those among the top 100 earners. And like, while we don't have the names of the top 100 uh, earners, we just have the positions that they were in. Uh, and it does seem that within that top 100 earners, where they're all over, I think 117,000, 119,000, I think was the lowest, was the 100th on the list. But they have expenses on top of that so it's really not their true figure they can even earn more money now the session went on yesterday for six hours in Leinster House the RTE chiefs were grilled on expenses that they clocked up um, particularly from this controversial barter account and of course we now know it was used to entertain clients and agencies and people taking out uh, advertising but it was also used to secretly top up Ryan Tupperty's uh, uh, salary. And of course, all of the papers and some of it was listed yesterday uh, during the Aractus uh, committee meeting. The spending included everything from thousands of euros on Ed Sheeran tickets, Garth Brooks, Robbie Williams. And the tickets were bought for both staff and for clients. And of course, the one that everyone's talking about, the 5,000 euro for the flip flops. And that was for a client summer party. And then for another party that they held, more than €2,000 was spent on balloons. Oh, that's a lot of money to spend on um, uh, balloons. But I suppose to me, what was really evident, if you sat back and thought about it and analysed everything that we heard yesterday at the Oireachtas Committee meeting is that when you look at RTE, RTE are very much a tale of two different RTEs. You have, at on one hand, at the very top, you'll have these 100 workers whose uh, salary packages are over €100,000. They go up to the top one. And we know, of course, the top one uh, would be the 515000 We know that that one would be Ryan Tuberty. But even going down along, there's 100 very well-paid people within uh, RTE. We also know we heard of a staff member who had a car allowance, but yet they also had a borrowed car. And I'm assuming that's one of the sponsorship sponsorship cars. We'll try and find out a little bit more about that when we speak to to Christopher Sullivan but they had a car allowance and yet they also had a car for the last uh, five years I mean that surely is a double standard so you have that at the top 100 and then look and reflect in sharp contrast at what's happening at the bottom staff at RTE have been called upon in recent years to take pay cuts they continued to work right throughout uh, COVID and when they were working without COVID, there was shrinking resources. They had substandard working conditions. I mean, you had the, the journalist over in London going into a toilet in a cafe, hoping that nobody came into the toilet beside her and flushed at the same time as she was trying to record a um, uh, package. And as one staff member I put it, there was a a misdemeanour that we were all in this together when in fact the majority of us were expected to take the hardship and we took the hardship to line the pockets of those at the top. So it just very much seems absolutely rotten to to the core, particularly among this top echelon who felt that they had this. Everybody's quoting slush fund. I mean, our own Colin Burke will go down in history as the man who put the name on the barter account by calling it a slush fund and needless to say all of the papers today are detailing uh, as many of 
information from the barter account that has come out is there will there be a lot more to come out sadly i th- I, I think there will i think we even had um Sheeni rally the chair of the board, not the executive board, the I think they should go back to call it the RTE authority because when you have the two boards, it gets all uh, confusing. But she reckons there is much more to come out uh, in the weeks ahead. So this is going to, we're going to be drip fed this over God knows how many weeks. And we know that there is a forensic accountant uh, going in who's going to start looking at that barter account. So God only knows what else is going to come out. But some of the headline ones that people are talking about in the papers 26,000 on the Bruce Springsteen and Ed Sheeran tickets, 23,000 on 36 tickets for the 2016 Champions League final. A one I'd love the forensic accountant to look into. 32,200 on a cinema expense that was labelled RTE Sport, no other details given. Jaw-droppingly, 53,700 on RTE's new season launch back in August of uh, 2018. The Klein Summer Party, 21,000. And I'm assuming that that's where the Javianas, is that how you pronounce those designer label flip-flops uh, were? Uh, so no wonder they came to 21,000. 5,000 of it was on flip-flops. There was 33,400 on two golf uh, outings. Uh, and then, of course, we all know about the 111,000 that was spent on the trip to uh, Japan for the Rugby World Cup. And like literally the list just seems to go on and uh, on. Jaw dropping for sure. When I mentioned you could get flip flops in pennies, uh, somebody said, Patricia, pennies have gorgeous glasses too. I think you can get them for around six euro. They're the easy readers and they're great. <laughs> Penny, where'd you get those pennies, girl? Trisha, I don't even think the, pe- the I don't even think they purchased the flip flops as somebody else. I think there was party central money somewhere. Somebody else, no faith in RTE. And Dennis says, any truth in the rumour that Del Boy and Rodney were the suppliers of those flip flops and they're being called before the committee? It is great viewing, uh, says uh, Dennis. I had a fun afternoon yesterday watching it uh, as well. Uh, anyway, thank you. That's just some of your calls and comments uh, coming in. I will get back them, I promise. A reminder to you, Maldron Hotel, we've teamed up with them all this week and they've very kindly given us an overnight stay for two people, including breakfast the next morning. And the Maldron, of course, is located right in the heart of Cork City Centre. It makes it the perfect place for a break in the Rebel uh, County. Overnight stay for two. So we are getting you to identify famous duos. We'll give you details of today's duo later on in the programme and your chance to win a trip to the Maldron Hotel. Cork Today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie. Now yesterday as we've mentioned, executives from RTE were once again before the Oireachtas Media Committee, which was their third grilling by politicians in a week. So how much further information did we discover? West Coast Door Deputy Christopher O'Sullivan is of course a member of the Media Committee and uh, he joins me this morning. Good morning Christopher. Hey Patricia. Uh, you're welcome. Now I heard you earlier in the week saying that it was li- like trying to pull teeth trying to get information out of RTE. Do you feel they were more forthcoming yesterday? Um, I suppose two ways to look at that. Okay, A lot of the information it's been drip fed and released prior uh, to our committee meeting. So um, again you have to be cynical of, of how we're getting this information the night before we're due to uh, grill and, and, and interview the um, executive board uh, and the board of, of RTE. 
uh, this information again is released. Um, I mean, I, I'm I'm very skeptical about the, the 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 tactics being employed here. We get information that not there's not just one barter account. There's actually three um barter accounts um we get information that it wasn't just one million that went through these barter accounts it was close to 1.6 million um so you know i i think that that i you know being cynical i think that was leaked for a reason so again it's it's been leaked did we learn anything yesterday i think the fact that breed o'keefe the former chief financial officer attended was was real key she was a key witness essentially very impressive um, very very impressive she she you could clearly say and it's a question i put to her i said i asked her did did you feel like you had to clear her name um and i did i asked her straight up did she feel like she was thrown under a bus by the other members of the executive and and i thought there was a moment there when she answered and she said that's a tough one uh Mm -hmm. you know it wasn't a straight out no so clearly she felt that the original statement by rt that said listen nothing to see here the only two people responsible here really are the former Director General D. Forbes and the former Chief Financial Officer Breda Breda um, O'Keefe, uh, but Breda Breda took her opportunity to really blow all of that out of the water. She said she gave a comprehensive handover to the uh, the uh, sitting Chief Financial Officer. Um, she also, you know, she, she quite clearly outlined the knowledge that the likes of the head of commercial, the head of content. Um, the director general would have had um, in and around these deals, so she really, I suppose, blew uh, blew the whole debate and the whole thing open, which which leaves just more and more questions. And that's the frustrating thing about this, uh, Patricia. It's, it's we're into week three now. I think the public are getting quite frustrated with it. But then we hear yesterday that um, Ryan Tuberty and his agent Noel Kelly, who are at the very centre of this crisis, have. Uh, agreed to come uh, and meet the committee now, next week. They, now, how is is that going to be in public? It would have to be. I, I, yeah. I, I, the reason I say that is, you, you, if you might, obviously, we will be. Um, I certainly will be asking that this will be the session will be in public. Uh, the reason is that I think the people are really interested to get full transparency here and clarity around what happened, and you can imagine the reaction if um, uh, Mr. Tauberty and his agent. Uh, insist on a private committee meeting that just straight away suggests that there's something to hide here there's something that that they don't want out in the public so i, I we're meeting tomorrow we're meeting tomorrow uh, in our private teams meeting this is when we set out the agenda for uh, upcoming meetings um and there certainly i'll be uh, insisting that this is uh, it has to be for, i mean it, it, you know it, really it, it absolutely has to be because w- while i hear you say you know people must be tiring of this there is massive interest i don't think we've ever had a topic that has generated so much interest uh, from from members of the public and i mean even yesterday before the close of the program when i heard about the the flip-flops the 5,000 on the flip-flops, that just enraged uh, people. Yeah, and, and I, I absolutely have no doubt that that's why we asked for a whole uh, raft of documentation, Patricia, <clears throat> pertaining to the barter accounts, the the, the, the deal with Mr. Tobody, the deal with uh, Patrick Keelty, um, a whole range of, of, of information that we felt might help our situation. And this, the, the transactions within the... Sorry, Patricia, there's another call coming through. Can you hear me? Yeah, you're perfect. Yeah. Oh, apologies. Yeah, yeah, yeah sorry. Okay. Yeah, when or on WhatsApp, when there was another call coming. Oh yeah, through, no, you're okay. You're okay. Um, no, uh, sorry. I was just saying. Yeah. So we 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 got a whole itemized uh, list of the uh, bartered account, and there were some eye-watering amounts outlined there, like thirty-two thousand euro for a cinema, 
Nothing else, no other information. €32,000 for a cinema, €13,000 for, for golf outing. And I'm not casting dispersions on anyone here who likes golf or likes to go on golf outings, but 13000 for, uh, you know, commercial, um, you know, entertainment, uh, you know, 13000 for an Ed Shearing gig. And then there was this €5,000 for, for flip-flops. I mean, that's about 38 yeah, it's it, it's a it's an astonishing figure for for flip flops anyway, um and these you know the, the the press really the journalists had a, had a field day on these figures. Yeah, I mean w- one that stuck out for me uh, today because I didn't hear it mentioned yesterday, but I picked it up in one of the papers. Uh, nearly six thousand was spent on accommodation for an executive board meeting that was held at Druids Glen in uh, December of twenty sixteen. I mean, but they had a, that to me sounded like they had a bit of a Christmas party uh, in Druids Glen. I mean, why would you need to spend €6,000 to have an executive board meeting? Have it in RTE. It comes down to the very, uh, I suppose, the, the underlying point of this whole debacle and this whole sack. It's, it's this culture within RTE, a culture that, like, as a nation, in fairness, we've come a long way in, in 10, 15 years that, you know, there was that there was a certain culture within, I suppose, Irish politics, within, within Irish society um, of, you know, kind of, pats on the back and looking after each other i think that what we're seeing is that it's taken a lot longer for that culture to be weeded out within rte that mindset that special treatment for certain people certain clients certain individuals and i think that's that that's what we're getting to the bottom of here is that this was rampant right throughout rte and i think what they're looking for and shuna Relic, the chair of the board of rte was a very interesting witness yesterday her statement was interesting she essentially said that her confidence in the board, in the executive, has been eroded. Uh, she said that she expect this is astonishing. She expects more information to come out in in the coming weeks. We we all tried to. I certainly put the question to her as whether she had confidence in the executive board, and she said she couldn't answer because she was getting legal advice. Now that mm. says to me that she's certainly considering her, her, her options. Having said that, I think there was a there was a feeling among some that the the executive board certainly had their their story uh, more intact at yesterday's session compared to the first two previous sessions. But um, I think uh, next week's session with um, Mr. Toberty and... and, uh, and Noel Noel Kelly Kelly will be interesting interesting. because I thought the, you know, the... The Chief Financial Officer, uh, Richard Collins, obviously, he was uh, trying to defend why his eye was slightly off the ball. And, you know, he spoke about, that, you know, we were into COVID and they actually had dropped seven million in uh, income. So he was, you know, fighting to kind of keep the, the station going. But while he was doing that, that was the same time that Dee Forbes wrote to Ryan Tuberty and assured him that his very well paid pay uh, wouldn't be cut. So I mean, D four. I mean, will we ever get to hear from D Forbes? Um, if, if you're asking me straight to, to, to guess, I, I would say I would say no. I mean, they're talking about um, uh, uh, this compelling mystic man, which a public accounts committee uh, does have under under certain uh, legislation. It's very convoluted and difficult progress a uh, process. Um, so the answer to your question is I don't know. I, I don't expect so. Obviously, she's very key to this, and I think Breed O'Keefe's statement yesterday really highlighted that there's far more to the story than yeah. than what we were getting from from um, from the executive board. But you you made the point there. This whole question that we'd have to have for 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 Ryan Toberty and Noel Kelly, um, you know, next week if they do come in. You know, right across the board, RT were taking pay cuts, fifteen percent. They were trying to cost cut. Um, you know, they they you. You, you, they'd really plead to the government for extra funding to bail them out of this terrible situation that they'd, they'd gotten in. Yet, you know, why did you have a situation where the, the main presenter, I suppose the most well-known presenter and his agent were looking for 
special treatment. We're looking, you know, to offset that 15% reduction by this special uh, deal, which was uh, un- underwritten and guaranteed by by our. That is a like I mean, there was certainly a, a moral high ground I think taken by some presenters during that time during COVID, and particularly during the pandemic. Pandemic, there was lots of criticism of government and how it was being treated, um, and how they were dealing with it. Yes, you know, we have all of this going on around the background. So it's really, there's a certain two-facedness to it that I'm very, very uncomfortable with. And certainly we'll have to get to the bottom of, of, of next week. Well, and it's only Ryan Tuberty and Noel Kelly can answer the questions as to why when everybody else was taking uh, pay cuts while they went in and said they'd take a pay, you take a pay cut, but it was the size of uh, the pay cut. And we know now that they got, that they both uh, got their way. The other one, I suppose, that everybody ta- is talking about, the car that was on loan uh, for five uh, years. And it looks like the person who got the car also had a car allowance. Have you any understanding of, of what's going on there? And when, when they say a car on loan, did that car belong to RT or was that a car, was that one of these brand ambassador cars? Um, I, I think I actually couldn't say that for, for certain. Like this this was the problem. We were trying to get to the bottom of this. I, I asked Adrian Lynch, the interim DG, what brand of car it was. Um, I asked, uh, I, he was asked later, was there, was that person still in receipt of the loans? They were, so they were getting a loan of a car. I imagine from RT, I'd have to clarify that, um, directly from RT. So they were not only getting a loan of a car, but they were also getting an allowance uh, on top of that. Um, That's they had incredible. It for five years, That's is, incredible. The, the length of time that the loan was in place, five years, um, an extraordinary length of time. And the fact, I mean, the fact that that car was only returned the day before. Yeah. Uh, the committee sat when the information was being sought. Clearly, that's what's happened here. The information was being sought. I think there's more to come on this, Patricia. Uh, I, I, I think that's something that could emerge uh, over the next few 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 weeks or days. Again, it's just um, it's underlines that culture yeah, and, within yeah, RT and that, you it's, know, it's special treatment for people. And also, how is it possible that somebody could be re- in receipt of a car allowance when they don't have a driver's licence? Yeah, <laughs> I know. In fairness, uh, I was sitting next to Senator Timmy Dooley during this whole episode and he had his homework done. Uh, I mean, it was a real bombshell at the very end when he asked when the car was returned and, and, and Adrian Lynch said yesterday um, that, I mean, clearly, if you don't have a driver's license, you're not using a car, you're not driving a car, you don't need a driver's uh, a, a, an allowance. I also asked the DG how he travelled to work. Bit of a personal question, maybe, and maybe nitpicking, but... It was just, again, this culture. He said 50% of the time he uses public transport, yet he claims the full um, allowance. There's a lot of this, there's a lot of these types of incidents going on that underlines this culture within RT that needs to be to be stamped out. Um, yeah, so and I'm also... I, I, expect, I, I expect you'll be hearing you'll be hearing more of this Carol Owen story. Yeah, and, I, and I also, I don't know which member of the media committee asked for it, but it would be interesting to see. We, we, we have the top 100 earners while it, it is anonymised. Um, interesting, somebody asked for the bottom 50. It'll be interesting to see the difference between the very lowest paid and the very highest paid. Yeah, that was Senator Fintan Moorfield, and I imagine you're going to see a significant disparity there. I mean, you, as, as I said to you last week, we regularly meet RT staff here. I mean, sometimes we go down to the RT studios here in Leinster House to do to do um, you know uh, interviews with with RT, and we'll meet the staff down there, the sound engineers, and they would have explained how they were previously on zero contract, uh, zero hour contracts 
basically just kind of wondering when they get a call, living from day to day, an awful way to be. And 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 you're, you're, this, I think that request is going to highlight that. Also, if I had more time, what I would like to have asked, and, and you always, hindsight's a great thing. There's a lot more questions I'd love to have got into my 10 minutes, and, but it's impossible. I'd love to have asked, you know, the amount of the, like, obviously they published the top 10 earning presenters, but what was clear from yesterday's information that we received is that many of the executive are actually in that top 10. So I feel like they're very much throwing the presenters to the wolves and not disclosing their own income, even though many of them are within that top 10 category. That's something that I'd well, like to see. Well, and, well, and just then very finally, because, when, you know, when you look at, I mean, even the top 100, um, they're six figure sums. I mean, it's in- incredible uh, earnings. Uh, I mean, many of them earning, you know, more than a hospital consultant, many of them earning more than President Michael D. Higgins or earning more than the Taoiseach, the Attorney General. It's just uh, mind boggling. What is your view on a pay cap? Um, I think it's it's very much the popular thing to call for at the moment. Um, it it I it has merit. It certainly has merit when you see the extraordinary figures that um, some uh, some of the presenters in in particular on is is Ryan Tubby worth half a million. You can have your own view of that. I personally don't think so. But having said that, if you, uh, you for this this whole to turn this ship around to a fresh start to really root out that culture and, uh, and mindset within RT, you're going to need. Certainly, in the executive boards, you're going to need some some high caliber individuals. I wouldn't I wouldn't let a, a pay cap of 150 thousand get in the way of that. But at the same time, half a million euro a year is ludicrous. So there, there's certainly a kind of a, a happy medium somewhere in between. You don't want it to become prohibitive. Prohibitive, as well as that. I mean, I I often use the example like Graham Norton for me, West Cork man from Bandon, is one from of the Tech, best. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, presenters, presenters yeah. that 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 we've seen um, in the UK or in, or in Ireland. Um, I mean, I would love the idea that someday he could come back and and perhaps present a show uh, in Ireland. I mean, likes of Terry Wogan, these these presenters at the uh, you know who who really were top notch. Um, and should you let a pay cap get in the way of of attracting that type of of uh, incredible presenter? I'm not sure. I think it's a debate that has to be had. Has merit. Yeah, the but, easy sta- thing, but the, stop the easy bidding thing to against. Call out is, yeah, let's cap it. Yeah, but I think stop. That's the easy popular thing to do, but you've got. I think the most important thing, sorry, Patricia, is the lower income earners. Those, yeah. those people who are on zero con- zero or contracts, they need to be brought up um, to, to 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 a more a fairer wage, and they need to be treated better and with dignity. Well said. Well said. And as Suni Raleigh said, stop bidding uh, against yourself. And to quote uh, Moya Doherty, charisma. It looks like it doesn't come cheap. Listen, uh, Christopher, we leave it there. We no doubt we will speak again. But in the meantime, thank you for that. And thanks for taking time thank out you, to Patricia. talk to us. Bye, Good morning bye, bye. to you. That is West Cork Doll Deputy and a member of the Oroxas Media Committee, Christopher O'Sullivan. Now moving on to a completely different topic because the parts of the ocean where seabirds are most exposed to plastics has been identified in a major research project which has involved Irish scientists. Researchers at University College Cork were among those involved in the study of over 7,000 seabirds and their movements. And joining me from UCC uh, is uh, Professor John Quinn, who was co-author of this study. Good morning to you, John. Good morning, Patricia. And you're very welcome to the programme. I suppose, start with the what areas of the world were identified as the most exposed to plastics? Well, closer to home, the, um, the area most exposed was the Mediterranean. It's not really surprising. It's an enclosed uh, sea. There's a huge human population around it. And there isn't a great deal of uh, water circulation compared to other parts of the world. It's also true in the North Pacific. There's a real hotspot over there. 
And the reason for that is they have these enormous circular um, oceanic currents. They're referred to as oceanic jars, and that concentrates plastic from all over the the Pacific Ocean in a relatively small area in the Northern Pacific. And there are two or three other places around the world as well, off New Zealand, for example, off Japan, and in uh, the Southern Atlantic as well. So how did the Irish waters fare out? The Irish waters actually fare out reasonably well. Uh, they're, they're not one of the hot spots. It's uh, probably a, a little bit below average, which is really good. And it's in some ways it's not surprising either because there's such strong currents around uh, the northeast. Our population is actually relatively low here good. on the Irish coast. So it's pretty good news uh, compared to other parts of the world for our seabirds. But of course, our seabirds are still exposed to plastic up here. And of course, our seabirds spend their winters in waters. And I take it some of the waters that they go to would have the much higher exposure. That That's absolutely true. Some of our seabirds like puffins, they do, they do go far as well. Others stay very locally. But one of our uh, probably least known seabird species, it's called the Manx Shearwater. And that's a species that stars in this paper. It's a, it's a very close relative of the albatross. They feed for quite large distances off our shore when looking for chicks. So they can do trips of up to 3,000 kilometers looking for a single meal for their chicks. But during the winter, they migrate the whole way down to the coast of Argentina. And down there is a hot spot for plastic. So we, we think that they could be at risk uh, during the non-breeding season in, in the southern oceans there off Argentina. Isn't it incredible, John, how far some of these birds travel? It, it, it really is. It's pretty amazing. You know, and they we have uh, some understanding about how they do it. They have an inbuilt sort of navigation system. Um, which allows them to detect things like changes in light level and how that relates to uh, lines of of, uh, latitude. But also they're able to read magnetic lines of inclination caused by polarity in in, in the centre of the Earth. And that, that is a relatively recent discovery. Basically, they create a map in their brain using a whole series of, of cues that allow them go down to the wintering grounds and then return to the exact same burrow every year. And some, and some of these species live for up to 60 years, so they're coming back to the same burrow pretty much every year over, over their lifetime. OK, when we look about how the, these seabirds are affected by the plastic, I mean, obviously you're going to have seabirds who will get entangled, uh, which is horrific to see, and they die that way. But do the birds confuse the plastic for food? Is that how they're ingesting it? Yes, that, that's exactly it. You know, um, there there isn't a huge amount of food out there for these species. So anytime they see something that looks like food, um, almost certainly they're starving. So uh, they are quite easily confused for, by some sorts of plastic. And it, it's a little bit of a mystery, but we actually think that the reason they do is for two reasons. One is that it does actually visually look like it. So some of their food are things like squid, which are quite plasticky looking or small fish. A lot of small fish look like pieces of plastic in the ocean. But the other reason is that plastic that has been in the ocean for a while has algae growing on it. And the algae uh. Uh, are thought to give off give off a chemical which um, uh, tastes like food. And, and that kind of fools them into thinking that these pieces of plastic are edible. Now, sometimes the plastic is ingested accidentally. 
because it has been ingested by the food that they've eaten already. So it can actually get into their system in a whole variety yeah, of different of course, ways. Yeah, and of course, yeah, they'll eat fish who will have consumed uh, plastics. And of course, uh, is it fair to say then that we humans mo- um, are consuming microplastics by eating fish? Yeah, yes, it is indeed. Uh, plastic is absolutely everywhere. It's uh, We do take plastic into our uh, body systems. I, I, I'm not an expert on that and I don't know what the impact is, but um, it doesn't have the systemic uh, uh, dramatic effects that it does uh, for seabirds. And one of the problems is that once it gets into the digestive systems of seabirds, it blocks up the gut in some species. Uh. And it, it, if the pieces are big, it blocks it up, it can scar the gut, it can get embedded in the tissue, it can cause inflammation. And there's even a a sort of a known condition called plastosis, which is effectively um, scarring tissue within the the, the lining of the gut of these species. And, and, you know, we don't fully know what impact this has on the the breeding biology of these birds, but we we do know it does affect the breeding success. And globally, it's been estimated that something like a million seabirds die every year from plastic. And is the situation with plastic particles in our ocean getting any better or is it getting worse? Uh, that's a very good question. Uh, they're, 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 the estimate for the amount of plastic in the oceans is, is pretty incredible. They think there's something like 170 trillion pieces of oh. plastic in the ocean. It's very, very hard to see it getting better, but certainly awareness is increasing and Earlier this year, there was some pretty good news um, in the sense that the high seas, which are those parts of the oceans which aren't really under the control of any government, they are now uh, under the United Nations Treaty for the High Seas, which basically puts a lot of um, uh, responsibility on, on nations to try and help clean up plastic, not just around their own shores, but also on the high oceans. And that has to help. Now, um, I, I, I think we have to be optimistic and because of the growing awareness of how problematic plastic is, um, this is something that can certainly be tackled. And there are lots of incentives out there, moves towards using less plastic in food packaging and, and so on. Um, so I, I'm, uh, it's, it's a problem, but I'm optimistic that we have the will globally to try and do we something We have to stay it. positive. And actually, I spotted a piece in the paper on a young environmental student who turns out to be from Bally de Hobb. We're trying to track him down. Who's, who's won, have, have you seen him who won the award? He's got a project that can remove microplastics from water. Yes, um, I, I've read about that in the past and there are lots of innovative ways emerging for where people can um, use different devices to, to remove plastic. And, and, and that's going to be very useful for local issues. But of course, the big issue is to change societal behaviour uh, globally. And, and uh, you know, it's, it really comes to the fore when you, if you spend any time in the Mediterranean. I was in holidays off Italy last year and I was quite shocked at the amount of plastic I saw on the seas. And I think really this is, the, all of these uh, little initiatives are fantastic, uh, but it's going to change societal change and the change yeah. in individual behaviour to stop plastics from getting into We all have to, we all to stop using the plastics. Listen, uh, John, yes. a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for that and continue good luck with the work that you're doing.
Thank you very much. Thanks a million. That is Professor John Quinn from UCC. And John Paul tells me uh, that that young student, Fionn, uh, who's originally from Bally Dahab, fingers crossed, we're hoping that he'll join us tomorrow because I want to hear more uh, about this project that he has invented. Thank you. Uh, some people commenting on my interview in the last hour with Professor John Quinn. Um, somebody said, Trish, uh, Professor Quinn uh, really spoke in simple language about the issue of plastic, making us all aware of the problem. Uh, thank you for highlighting it. And Joe and Damami said that was a very interesting interview about plastics in our oceans. Professor John Quinn was interesting and very easy to listen to. Very, very informative. Yeah, and I'm hoping, as we say tomorrow, uh, to get this young environmental scientist or student. He's from Bally de Hob and he's done an invention that could actually take plastics out of the ocean. That's a very small step, but it's certainly a step in the right direction. So thank you for people taking time out to contact us on that. Can anybody offer advice to John in uh, Bantry? He has a lady who does his ironing for him. So yesterday morning, as he was heading to work, he left the clothes that he needed ironing at the lady's house and he left it outside her front door. Unfortunately, at the same time, there was a charity clothes collection going on. Stickers had gone through the door for a company. The sticker on it was show your love, donate, clean clothes, shoes, bed linen, curtains, towels, jewelry, the usual, the door to door charity collection that happens. Now, John said, he did not have one of those stickers on his black plastic bags that he left outside this lady's house for the ironing. But unfortunately, close collection came along, saw John's ironing in the bag outside the lady's house and took the bags. Now, John has tried phoning them, can't get an answer. He tried emailing them, hasn't got a response. He Googled them. They seem to be a UK company and it's an 089 company. John Paul did the same. John Paul tried to email, uh, tried to phone them, is getting nowhere with them. Now, I know we've highlighted these door-to-door charity collectors before and I know the charity regulator is advising people not to leave uh, clothes out for them because usually they are commercial uh, businesses. But John John in Bantry is wondering, does anyone, it's a complete long shot, does anyone have any contact details or does anybody know what might be better? Does anybody know of another collection going on in your area that maybe John could turn up and find the van that's collecting the clothes? Maybe he might have some hope of getting his clothes back that way. There are blue and green stickers with a pink heart ribbon sort of a ribbon in the shape of a heart on the front of it and it's show your love donate does anybody know if they are collecting anywhere particularly in the West Cork area maybe we could track them down that way 0818 103 103 in undated with calls and texts about the comings and goings at the Oireachtas Committee uh, yesterday let me bring you uh, some of them Hi Patricia I'm just wondering did the name of the person who did the trick with the car in that they had the loan of a car for five years and they were getting a car uh, allowance. Uh, Were they any of the ones that were sitting at the table yesterday answering questions? Did any of them get the bus home? Maybe he or she had an RTE bus pass. No, they were asked that and it wasn't a member of the executive. It's a member of staff, but they're not saying what division of staff the person who had a loan of a car and a car allowance. 
Someone says one law for those at RTE and the normal person trying to struggle with bills, rents, mortgage and taking pay cuts while the fat cats are robbing us blind. Get rid of the TV licence, says this texter. Pat says, for God's sake, Patricia, will you give us a break? Gangsters and criminals uh, fighting over their corrupt deeds. We've become a very sick nation where honest, decent people are being stopped from speaking out and when we do, these sick people have some name for it. It has to stop. We have to go back when we were a much more civilised society, says Pat. John says, Patricia, all the carry-on in RTE will all be forgotten about next year. You mark my words. You watch. Everything will be brushed under the carpet. Have no doubt, nobody will face court or jail for any theft or robbery. We've seen it before in government circles. It's good media. It's going on in the majority of businesses uh, today. It's the way Paddy does business, says John. Remember, though, when people are calling them out as criminalism uh, and saying they should go to jail for theft and robbery, the RTE advice is that no fraud has happened. I know some of the TDs were pushing for Matty McGrath in particular was looking for the Gardaí to go in and, and or the, go in and do an inquiry but their advice is no fraud has occurred. Martin in from Moy says, Patricia, I think everybody should now get a free TV licence. I wish I could afford even one of those flip-flops. I wish I had a car allowance. The low-income people of Ireland are kept down the pecking order of life. Get rid of everyone in RTE. I wish I had a cinema allowance, he said. I wish I had an allowance to go to Japan. The TV licence is too costly for the programmes that they air. It's all stupid shows and many of them are just repeats. As for the show Ireland's Fishes Family well Patricia what a load of rubbish the best thing on RT is the Angelus at six that's Martin Infomoy and I'll have to jump in and defend Ireland's Fishes Family because I have to say that that is one of my uh, favourite programmes let me go to the phone lines David is holding he's in Holly Hill good morning to you David good morning Patricia wonderful to be on your programme again and great to have you have you on as well did you sit like me and, and watch it for the complete five hours I did. I watched it from <laughs> one, half past one and quarter past seven. And, and last week, I watched both the, the Rockers comedy on Wednesday and the Public Account comedy last Thursday. Yes. <laughs> well, I, I don't know whether there were sad individuals or it's really good viewing. I, I can't work it out. Well, I, I, think, I think it's amazing viewing. It's not yeah. watching any film. Uh, because it's live. It's, it's live action and you, uh, anything can happen. So, yeah. um, now, going back to last week, um, I suppose, um, well, in fairness now to the, to the executive board, um, we still don't know whether everything's coming out of their mouth is the truth but putting that aside at least they seven of them came in both days last week and came in again yesterday there was none of them handed in any stiff notes and said we can't come in that's a good no. point and, and and I did think about them yesterday this time yeah. yesterday I was thinking of them they knew going in the grilling they were going to get it wasn't so like I mean, they went I in mean, a bit innocently the first time but they knew the grilling they were going to get they did and like you're a person no, like a person could be a good singer, they could sing in the kitchen on their own every morning of the week, but if they're in the crowd that has to sing a song, some people just can't, get, in public, get up and sing in front of the whole audience. So it's hard enough to go in there, no matter how tough you are, and face that kind of a grilling. Yeah. So, but I mean, now, now Richard Collins, um, I believe, last Thursday, just before, half, one o'clock before they went into the, the public town, somebody, he was out in the RT car park and he'd I believe he looked a, a, a broken man going before he went in. That was on after, day two, uh, yeah. After, after the grilling, he got on Wednesday. Yeah. Now, he did, uh, I mean, he did give a very uh, stupid answer to the question of what was his salary and uh, by saying he didn't know what his salary was. 
And now, and as I said to John Paul, if, if I was in that position and Alan Kelly, the Labour TD, asked me what was my salary, I would have responded by saying, I have no problem giving you my salary or my pension, providing, Mr Kelly, that you would give me yours. Yeah, but you see, the thing is, Mr Kelly would be able to, Alan Kelly would be able to, his is, his is published. All of yeah, the, yeah, well, the Oireachtas members are but, published. But I don't see it's any of Paddy Kelly's business what Mr. Collins' salary is. That, to me, is a kind of a private thing, as such. Yeah, but it turned out, David, the top 100, yeah. 59 of them are managers and executives. Most people thought that the high earners were all the stars oh, and the talent. The top, yeah. uh, but if 59 of them were executives and managers. There's a lot That's of right. people getting a lot of money. They're very yeah. highly paid. And I almost, and I and I, I, I kind of have a funny feeling that the next the, the new the next director general uh, I can't think of his name off Kevin off Backhurst right Kevin Backhurst yeah. yeah next Monday I got this funny feeling that uh, a lot of that them seven people that are were there yesterday I, their jobs could be gone next week. Well, the more I could look be. into that, they 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 won't be able to sack them because they will be open to all kinds of claims the, and the, the, yeah. what what's been spoken about is they'll be moved sidewards. So, that, course, yeah. so only time will tell what that means. And if they do move them sideways, does that mean they put in somebody else and therefore it just costs the exchequer even more? Possibly. Yeah. Uh, but, but going back to this, going back to yesterday's uh, session, um, I thought, um, first of all, Mr. Collins, I, from last week, well, he, he looked a broken man last week. I thought he performed exceptionally well yesterday. He answered the questions um, pretty okay. And um, he didn't seem to be, you know, as upset as last week. Myra Doherty, I thought, spoke very well. It's very it's hard to upset uh, Adrian Lynch. She seems to, uh, is the, the, the calmest man on the planet. Well, he's only the interim director general. Yeah, he's know just, you know, all he has to say is, I, listen, I'm just in here putting out the fires. I'll be going away well, soon. He, yeah, yeah, but I mean, you're still... You're still Ger- Geraldine O'Leary, the commercial director, the well, blonde-haired woman, I thought she looked broken yesterday. She did, and they were saying that she actually... Uh, she actually brought in 1.6 billion mm. um, to uh, RT, like, which is a substantial figure. But the one point they made to John Paul early on is that I thought there was one particular question yesterday from Senator Timmy Dooley. I thought it was very harsh. I'd even go as far as to say it was a despicable question. Not the question as such, but it was it was addressed to the, to the seven members mm. of the of RT. He said. Is there any, in, any anything information that you are not telling us um, right now? Or is there any question, uh, he said, that you are hoping that will not be asked at this com- by this comedy? And then he said, I'm directing this question especially for Mr. Collins. Yeah. I thought that, I I, thought that was horrible. Yeah. I mean, he, he, yeah. I, I mean, I mean <laughs> if I was Mr. Collins, I'd have said, well, Mr. Dooley, why, why did you... Uh, Singled me out. Uh, um, are you saying I'm a lawyer or whatever? But why the seven of us here? Why did you pick me out? I thought He's, that was horrible from Dooley. They were, yeah, because in fairness to Matty McGrath, he was putting his questions, uh, which were tough questions to answer. He was putting his questions to everyone. Any of them could jump in and answer. The only thing I did feel when 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 t- uh, Timmy Dooley raised that issue, I am very much aware that all of the Aroxis members are getting insider information from people who either worked with RT before, maybe they work with RT now, and they're giving them pointers to say, you need to dig on this, you need to find, like, like for example, 
there was no way anyone on the Oireachtas Committee could have known that there was somebody within RTE who had a car allowance and had access to a free car. There was no way anyone could have known there was somebody in RTE who has a car allowance and actually doesn't have a driving licence. That had to have come from somebody on the inside. So they're being fed information. So I felt that Timmy Dooley has been given a nugget of information, but he's not 100% sure yet. But as if by asking the way he asked it, somebody was going to come and say, oh, yeah, actually, there's a slush fund somewhere else. I thought it was a pretty idiotic question. Yes, yes. But I, I, I just thought that he should... I, he Wrong should to direct it at one person. I, yeah, he should, have, he should have left one of the members just to answer the... Uh, whichever one answer the question he asked yeah. and asking it loud with Richard Collins Come here before I let you go are you looking forward to Ryan Tupperty and uh, Noel Kelly and Noel Kelly Can Hi, and, get and the popcorn ready David and unfortunately Patricia I don't know the reason why but the public con- uh, comedy against uh, today is not is not for some reason is not live on television today no no they're, I think they're actually meeting in private they don't have the RTE board in with them I think they're meeting to discuss where they go from here it's the same oh, they're me- not the yeah, and today, no. no no and the media committee are doing the same thing next week they meet in private to decide where they go next and then when they have the RTE board in it'll be public so we will let you know listen David mind yourself great to chat to you Thanks for your Thanks bye-bye. a million. Bye-bye. That is uh, David in uh, Holly Hill. A Kilworth listener says the scandal in RTE is shocking. But watching them being questioned on TV yesterday, this Kilworth listener said, I couldn't get over the calmness, the smart suits, the hairs were done, the tone in their voices, not a bead of sweat between them. You'd think they'd at least look a bit embarrassed. They'd be a bit worried looking. They'd be a bit uncomfortable looking, particularly when they're in front of all of those TDs asking questions. The lady from Sinn Féin, the blonde haired lady, and I'm assuming you're talking about uh, Imelda Munster. She was the one who was who seemed to be causing the most Luster. But still, overall, that's what's more shocking to me was that they can sit calm, calm and collect. Moya Doherty was smirking and smiling while other uh, colleagues were speaking. She could be spotted on the cameras. She was nodding, looking down and smiling away. Do they think they're like Amber Heard, the actress, celebrity, stars, talents themselves? I think a lot of them do not realise that the nation was looking in and they all sat there smugly. Uh, another guy was irritating me the way he was bending down into the microphone to answer questions and then he'd turn his head after he gave an answer with a smug smile on his face. I, well, I don't know um, whether they were sweating or feeling a bit uncomfortable. I do think Geraldine O'Leary, the commercial director, the girl with the blonde hair and the glasses, um, I, do, I do feel she was under immense pressure. You could actually hear it in her voice and if you even look at photographs of her arriving into the Oireachtas Committee last Wednesday versus arriving in yesterday. I think she even lost weight. I'm wondering if she if she'd been eating or sleeping and she was a pains to point out because there was a, there's been a lot on the media about her and her husband and in particular there was a photograph that went up over the weekend of herself and her husband at a rugby match in Chicago and of course somebody had captioned it saying, did, you know, did this come out of the RT Slush Fund? And that's why she pointed out yesterday that she wanted to publicly state that herself and her husband paid for their own flights and their own hotel and uh, their own tickets to the match. Uh, 0818 103 103 and just one more in on this uh, bunch. Hi Patricia, well by now the once proud RTE authority has become a flip-flop authority. Ah Michael, I like what you did there. What a fall from grace and by all accounts things are possibly going to get worse with people calling for heads but be aware of this route as it'll be like shearing the top of a double-decker bus while driving under a low bridge. The localities could and would come 
at a massive cost to the taxpayer. As I've said from early on in this debacle, the RTE board has to be reconstituted and very effectively at uh, that. Thank you for that, Michael, to 0862 103 103. C103 Jobs. The Dohalla Community Food Services, they've got a vacancy for a kitchen assistant. Now, the hours to work are 9.30am to 2.30pm. It's a Monday to Friday position. Call Linda 029-76375. A part-time gardener is wanted at Longerville House in uh, Mallow. Own transport essential. CVs, please, to info at longervillehouse.ie. The Donkey Sanctuary in Lascaro, they've got a vacancy for a visitor experience assistant. Email joanne.nevin at thedonkeysanctuary.ie And CE Tree Services, they're looking for a chainsaw operator, a tree climber and ground staff. It's for work in Cork City and West Cork. Now you need to have safe pass and chainsaw certs all necessary. Contact Mike at cetreesservices at gmail.com You'll find all of the details and more job information by going online now. Just go to c103.ie forward slash jobs for more. This is C103. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie. And there's a huge amount of calls and comments uh, coming in on the RTE debacle and I promise you I will get back to it. But in the middle of all of them, somebody says, Patricia, I'm wondering, do you know uh, the Irish ladies soccer game has been shown on TV uh, tonight it is actually it is this is the last friendly before they head, head to the World Cups against France isn't it it's on uh, RT2 uh, tonight. So yes, it is being televised. Now moving to a completely different issue but referencing back to an issue that we held earlier in the week because many people were taken aback listening to Castletown Bear based Dr Fiona Kelly outlining just how difficult life can be for a GP running a rural practice especially when the doctor is the only one in that practice. West Cork Independent Doll Deputy Michael Collins has taken up Dr Fiona's case and actually raised it at Leaders questions yesterday and uh, Michael joins me uh, this morning. Uh, good morning to you Michael. Good morning uh, Patricia. Now Michael I, I know I, I know and appreciate how busy you are and you don't always get a chance to listen to the radio but I don't know did you get to hear Fiona on the programme on Tuesday? I thought it was utterly heartbreaking to listen to her. Absolutely I did. I, I, I played it on the way to Dublin uh, via my phone uh, and I was listening to it very closely. I, ha- I also had met uh, with Dr Fiona in, in Castledown Bear on, on Monday myself I went down and met her in the clinic when she had a space available and by God there was a hell of a lot of people there that day but in fairness she, she, she squeezed in sometimes so I could get my facts right so that when I raised questions at leaders questions today that I was speaking from the heart of a rural doctor not speaking from the heart of Michael Collins even though I had a fair idea as to what was going on so both listening to, to her interview with you um, and, and, and both her discussions with me, I outlined what I felt was uh, an honest, from the heart uh, question to the teacher yesterday, three minutes on the floor at all, which isn't easy to get, and he, he, he had his chance to reply, uh, Patricia. But, like, look, there is a lot of Dr. Fiona's out there, and that's what I asked him at the very end. Will you engage with the Dr. Fiona's out there? Kelly's all over the country, not just uh, Bera. And, you know, you know, I, I outlined at the, at the very beginning of my leader's questions how, like, Dr. Fiona, I actually it took a lot from her own social media feed and, and from discussions with her on Monday. Like, she works outside of her hours. She does same-day appointments, which very few doctors do now. Yeah. She, take, she takes new patients. She never gives out. She's quite happy to bring them in. She rarely gets a lunch break. 
she she's really gets home when she should, but she still loves her job. And that's so important. And, and well, you could you hear, look, that's the one thing, you could hear the, the passion. And thank God that she has that passion because nobody else would do or put up with what Dr. Fiona is doing, except that she's passionate about her work, about the people, and, and she loves the area. Thank God. Every bit. And, and I know that from the people of the Castle Dunbar always, you know, speak so highly of, of, of Dr. Fiona and, and, and rightly so because she gives her whole heart. So my worry is if you look at all that above that I spoke about, this leads to burnout if a person doesn't get uh, some normal type breaks and, and have the assurance while they're away that their their loved ones, which happens to be their patients, are being looked after. And she did this here before she left for a little break in Italy. She got a retired GP to take over her practice but the bottom line is, and we try to cut to the chase, the GPs, uh, the, the retired GPs uh, registration and insurance was up on the Thursday. So obviously, common sense thing is extended for a D. You think the system out there would allow that, but yeah. it didn't. And yeah. then you found uh, Dr. Fiona in Italy trying to run the show from Italy, having to close the doors. But I still see on, 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 on the phone to try and talk to patients uh, and try and start. Uh, yeah, and, be, and because this having to re-register, and I don't know how often doctors have to do it, but because there's a cost implication of it, there are a number of other retired GPs that Fiona contacted who I think would have been would have been more than willing to help her out, particularly when it was only a day. But their registration has lapsed and they're not. Well, you know, why would we ask any retired doctor to have to pay thousands of euro every year uh, to pay for the registration. Surely something could be done for retired GPs who'd be willing to act as locums and do a few weeks work uh, every year and, and do that by giving them either reduced or free registration. Absolutely. And, and that's one of the, the solutions I put forward to the teacher yesterday. But the first part of my questions, which I spent three minutes on, was actually taking exact words from Dr. Fiona, and I said there's many Dr. Fiona's up there, and, and relating them to the teacher, and he gets up and he says you're feeding us in misinformation and I left him go because he had his three minutes until I replied and I told him that's not misinformation from Michael Collins that's, mis- that's information from the doctor herself and, and he what, looked at me what, and said what, oh, what? What, what, what had you said that he accused you of misinformation? Well, he didn't he, he said that there's uh, ample there's enough doctors out there now, I asked him where are they um, he says that there's enough training at the present time, more than ever before, but we all know what's happening. As soon as they've trained, they've jumped on the plane, they're gone out of the country. We're all well aware of that. Um, I told him general practice, some general practices are their knees, but then that's what I, I took the extract from uh, from the social media. Uh, from uh, Fiona's post, yeah, yeah. And I also said that Dr. Fiona and others have solutions. So he must have taken some bit of... Uh, the nines that he taught me because I was coming up with all these these problems, but they're not. They're there. They're black and white. And he doesn't seem to understand. He's a former doctor, so I mean, I was talking to a man that's far more uh, educated in this field than myself. But he obviously doesn't understand the the life of a rural doctor. And there's a big difference between he did speak about his own father being a doctor and being up at three in the morning and like he under growing up to that type of living and that has changed. And well, that was a different time. That was a different. It, that was a time it, when when doctors made house calls uh, in the middle of the night. But Doctor Fiona was. also, I think, had very one simple solution that could help, and that was to speed up the process to allow doctors this that rural uh, project that they put in place for doctors to come and work in rural areas, and this is for doctors outside the EU. But as she outlined to us on the program it can take up to a year it can and he took issue with me on that because i i put forward uh, what what i have got from different doctors including dr fiona's five solutions 
that will help. It won't clear the problem. It won't cure all the problems, but it certainly will make a big difference. And one thing is that, you know, doctors today are training and they're being told that they have to be 24-7 committed to their patient. And young doctors don't want to commit to that anymore. They don't have to cross the world. So the contract needs to change. I also said the HSE must accept some responsibility for having to secure locums for sick and annual leave cover. Because as soon as Dr. Fiona went out on Friday last week, the HSE were all over her, whereas there was no yeah, one. Why uh, have there, you there was closed? Yeah. on the back over the last yeah. number of years, keeping the doors open, looking after the people. And GP should have protected time off to an annual leave and, and sick leave maternity. That's one of my... But and, and you one see of the things I did say, Patricia, was yeah. I asked him, would they cut the red tape and make doctor applicants from outside you be registered no more than a month? No, yeah. I would have loved if he got up and said, uh, I said, the process at this time is taking 72 months. No, I'd love to get up and say, well, maybe not a month, but we'll try and see, can we do it two to three months? No, he's... He, he he's really kicked out my... Uh, he said, you have no idea. He says, we have to research who the doctors are. We have to make sure they're safe to come into the country. Now, I assume when somebody's training in another country that there is a history of that person there, and I respect that that history has to be looked into. But he said, otherwise, what you're suggesting could lead us into a lot of other problems. So I, I don't know. I, I, the other thing was, I said, what about the, the, these people that want that have retired but don't want to retire fully and are willing to work, uh, you know, a day here, a, a couple of days a week? Yeah. And maybe to look at the insurance and the registration fees, he never even touched on it. No, he did. The only good I got out of it was that he said he's going to touch base with the doc- Dr. Fiona, our, our Minister Donnelly. So maybe, yeah, maybe from yeah. that... Yeah, because because with, you know because she she does have the solutions, but I do think you're right on we need to support the GPs that that are working because if we support the GPs that are working and give them their time time off and be guaranteed that next summer when Dr Fiona wants to go away she's not going to have the same problems that she had this year and if she decides to have another baby she's in, she'll get her maternity leave or if she's out sick or, or whatever and I think by doing that we then might encourage some of the younger GPs coming up they then might look and say oh like I get a good work-life balance but I can understand a young doctor who looks at a GP practice in a rural area thinking I don't want to work those crazy hours I want to have my own uh, own life and and rightly so they have done you know so many years in college they want a decent life at the end of it so I can understand why somebody isn't encouraged to go into some of those practices so we need to make sure that the system that's there they are supported yeah, Absolutely and I, I, I genuinely uh, do respect that the Taoiseach he grew up in a, in a family where he was a doctor and his father was a doctor but it was an urban situation. We have a, a, a lot of rural doctors throughout the country that are facing burnout. Some have burned out and maybe retired before their time. We have solutions, not magical solutions and ain't going to resolve all, but it certainly is going to help quite a lot. If the re- in the situation last week, if the retired doctor was allowed a continual registration and, and the state maybe pick up the tab for the few days, this issue wouldn't have arose. Now, if she was willing to, that same doctor could be back in a week's time or, or three weeks' time or four weeks' time somewhere else for another week and this is where you resolve your situation. But they really haven't... There are solutions. Yeah, and there are solutions. Saying, he keeps saying there's 20 doctors training, there's loads of doctors. The population is growing. The population of elderly is growing. And the people, young people that are training are jumping, unfortunately, on the plane of leaving our country because they can't get a house. They can't. There's a whole load of passport issues, uh, expensive living in this country. And some people want to travel the world after being trained. So, Patricia, we have slight solutions. And that comes from the rural doctors, not from me. He thinks I think as I'm making up these solutions as I go along. I certainly am not. But these are coming from, uh, I think they need to sit down actually with the doctors themselves and create solutions that are, are, are workable.
not create solutions that are not workable at this time. And as you say, there are Dr Fiona's all over the country. And while it's great news that nearly half a million people uh, shortly will have a GP visit only card, but the worry side there is that is only going to put additional pressure on the likes of Dr Fiona and GP practices who are already overstretched. They really haven't thought that one out. No, they haven't. You see, they'll, they'll flood. They'll flood the clinics, uh, putting doctors under um, um, huge pressure. I mean, Dr. Fiona herself works two nights a week as well as the days so she has to work during the week, which is another crazy situation. And I've brought this up several times in the all about the South Dock situation in in Castletown Bear, but it kind of it kind of goes under a radar as being okay. But I don't see uh, where you have a situation where, and I saw it Monday myself. Um, the, our, our clinic packed all day and then facing into a night uh, that she could be called out, and she have young family. It's, it's totally out of order. It's totally wrong. And, you, you, you know, you wouldn't put a, a, a van driver or a lorry driver in that situation of, of burnout or... or well, you or, wouldn't be allowed. You wouldn't, there's you legislation there. No, there's there's, there's legislation there. But it seems uh, like it's okay here. Uh, John in Cove says, would you not think that the present on Taoiseach, the fact that he is a, a qualified doctor, would not step in and sort out the health system? He did during COVID uh, times. Uh, he should be doing more to help those young doctors because he's a doctor himself. So he must know uh, what is going on. All right, listen, uh, Michael, we leave it there. Um, uh, before I let you go, because I can see where he's still inundated with this. What are you making of, of what's coming out of RTE? Well, it looks to me, uh, Patricia, as we're getting fed, uh, we're being drip-fed uh, information, and it gets worse as the day is going on. Um, I have to agree with uh, my, my, my colleague who's on uh, the, the committee that's dealing with this issue at the present time, uh, that there needs to be a guard investigation into what's going on here, because we're not being fed the truth. Um, and, 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 and as bad as the truth is, hear it and hear it uh, 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 together at the one time. They say they get a drip here and a drip there. That have, someone has a car, someone has bought 5,000 worth of flip-flops. It's outrageous, outrageous. And at the same time, Patricia, and I brought it up in the doll the other day, you have a gentleman in, in, in Ross Carby who, who allowed RTE in, in his ground to put a mast up to give a service to the people of Ross Carby, and they, they, they claim squatters rights in the ground. Oh! <laughs> Are you I, for I, real? I, I brought it up in the dawn and I'm going to bring it up again in a minute, uh, in the next uh, uh, 45 minutes for uh, the tarnish as well, asking him how could they do this to this man and then to further insult the, the man. They put a Vodafone mast up on the same mast so that they could take profit from themselves and they couldn't give that man a brown cent, but they could they could go around in fancy flip-flops and fancy holidays and fancy concert tickets and... Ah, uh, I don't know. It's the whole incredible. Ago, it's incredible. I think, we're, we're, I think we need to call the shots much stronger. I think the government have been far too weak in playing around them. I think it's time to move in and clean out. OK, we'll let you get back to your work, uh, Michael. In the meantime, thank, thank you for you. that. And thanks uh, for joining us. That is uh, from West Cork, uh, Deputy Michael Collins. Cork Today on C103. Now, the Galway Film Fla will present the world premiere of a new non-fiction feature film which explores the lives of sheep farmers on the stunning Beira Peninsula. Hungry Hill is the name of the feature film and it was directed by Mika Van Mechelen who uh, joins me this morning. Good morning to you Mika. Good morning Patricia. And uh, You're very welcome to the, uh, to the programme. Now it's a beautiful beautiful part of the country but it's, it's a very challenging terrain. A, a tough place isn't it for sheep farmers? It certainly is yes um, and I'm a sheep farmer myself so I like to think that I have have experience on the subject. So, and are there many sheep farmers in the area? Oh yes, there are. 
Um, there are many, and I suppose the best place to, to see them in action is at the Mart, really, in Kenmare, which is always a hive of activity. Um, and uh, the the main person in, in my, my film, well, it's not, actually not only my film, I also uh, had a co-director, Michael Holly, Okay. Um, and he lives in Clonakilty, actually. Um, I'm on. I'm in Kerry, so um, Cork is well represented. Um, so Connie is a farmer that I know uh, personally, and and he features strongly in the film. And he actually lives at the foot of Hungry Hill. Now this is Connie, and he's got a brother, John, isn't it? That's correct. Okay. Yeah. So so do you follow them around as they're doing their work? Is 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 that what happens? Yeah, I I did a lot of those shots of the the sort of the action shots and the the day-to-day um, work on the farm and a lot of it was shot while I was actually working myself. So I spent a lot of time going over and back to Berra and following Connie around, um, which was great. Um, but it, it was challenging as well because uh, the, the time of year and, you know, conditions for filming weren't always ideal. And then, and then Michael um, did the shots of the mountain primarily. He took off up Hungry Hill and spent a lot of time there and and those shots run throughout the film. So the mountain is like a presence almost. Wow. And it's stunning. It's a stunning mountain. It's it's a gorgeous mountain, but it, it is it's rough terrain and yeah. Um, yeah, a lot of ground to cover. Very rugged, very rugged. And when when you talk about, you know, sheep farmers, you know, out out, out on a hungry hill and on the Bear Peninsula, I'm assuming would many of these farmers would their families have lived in that area for generations? Well, hearing from Connie, yes, there there were, and they they would have eked out a living and managed to raise families. But obviously, as you know, a lot of them would have had to leave um, for for America and and you know go go away. Um, but the, the remains are, of that are still visible, especially in the bogland areas where they used to cut turf. Um, but obviously now it's it's so much more difficult to to raise a family on more land. Even if you have more land, it's it's dif- it's difficult, you know. So back then, I think they they probably achieved more. Yeah, because less. yeah, because they they had more of a population base uh, as well. And does Connie talk about how how his life has changed over the years? Well, he talks about the pressures that farmers are under, and just quite quite openly speaks about his own experience and what he's seen happening. Um, but it's sort of, it's not um, trying to preach in any way or it's just kind of telling telling the story very um, naturally. So, and a lot of it is just also, um, you know, active. So it, it's literally seeing him working with his sheep mm. um, and that that's how the story is related really. And your own family story features uh, Mika. How, tell me how your family ended up on the Bear Peninsula. Well, my, my father was farming in a region in, in Holland, very close to the Belgian border. I'm not actually Dutch, I'm Belgian, but okay. um, I came over here when I was six years old with my parents, um, and we were living in a, a nature reserve and grazing sheep there. But it was, you know, coming under threat from um, industry, which is the industry located in Antwerp. The Antwerp Harbour is very intensive, and it was just difficult to stay there. Um, due to the pollution and and the pressures coming from from that region, 
So my my parents came here in 1981, and my dad bought a, a mountain um, in the in the Caja Mountains, which is the same range as Hungry Hill. And if I go to the top of the hill, I can and keep going a little bit. I can see Hungry Hill. So. And did yeah. your family have any connection with the south my of mo- Ireland? My mother came here in the 60s as a, a student and went to Puck Fair and <laughs> I suppose fell in love with with Ireland, you know. Yeah. I suppose had a bit of a romantic um, notion of, of the place. Um, and it also reminded her of her childhood and, you know, things had moved a little bit slower here than in, in Europe and in mainland Europe and they wanted to go back to that and and raise a family. And you've stayed on as a sheep farmer? I have. I inherited the farm from my father and I have three sons myself and a daughter and one of my sons, he completed the green cert there in April and he's, he's actually taking over my farm uh, at the moment. So I'm lucky that I have somebody coming up to pass me. it on, to pass yeah. it on. So where does the filmmaking come into come into it all? Well, I'm I'm an artist, so I have two occupations that are can be quite challenging, um, but they combine well. I'm lucky. I don't really know sometimes where one ends and the other begins. So I like to make work about people I know and experiences that I have firsthand. So, yeah, they, they work well together. And I've been working as the Kerry filmmaker in residence for a long time. And that's really brought me out into the community and given me a lot of support. And also I've learned a lot along the way. So it felt like the right time to make a feature film. And with Michael's help, we, we've achieved that. And we had a great team of professionals that, that, helped us along the way as well. Well done, well done. And is this your first feature film? It's actually not my first no, feature, okay. but yeah, but it's the first properly funded feature. Okay. And the well Arts Council supported it. So, yeah, it's it's a whole other level this brilliant, time. Brilliant, brilliant. I love to see the Arts Council putting money into regional areas and, and for the wider audience then to see an area like Hungry Hill and uh, the Bear Peninsula. And, I, and I'm assuming, um, is there an archive footage used as well? That's right. I've included, um, I managed to get some archive material from Holland and Belgium. So that, that creates an interesting kind of intertextuality with the other footage and tells a different story as well. OK, it seems really, really exciting. You get the premiere at the Galway Film Fla on the 15th of July. I, no doubt you're attending. Are you excited about it? Yeah, we're really looking forward to it and we'll be in Galway for the duration of the festival. So we're Brilliant. yeah, we're very excited and thanks for 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 this. It's great. Well, we wish we wish you luck at the FLA and 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 I can already see people saying, "Will we be able to see it locally?" Any plans to show it in West Cork? Well, we we aim to obviously hopefully get get uh, other uh, festival screenings. Yeah. Um, there will be a screening in the Martin Kenmare on August the 12th for the local community because many of them are in the film. Okay. So, and we'll see what happens next and where we go next, hopefully. Okay. yeah. Well, keep in contact with us. And if it has been shown locally, uh, we certainly would love to give it a mention because people would like to go along and see it. And we wish you uh, really, really good luck at uh, the Galway Film Fly. And thank you for taking time out, Mika, to talk to us today. Thanks so much. All the best. Good morning to bye you. Bye-bye. Uh, Bye-bye. A lovely lady. That is um, uh, Mika uh, Van Mikkelen. I hope I'm pronouncing that uh, right with her movie on uh, about. It's called Hungry Hill and it explores the lives of sheep farmers and which is a stunning but challenging uh, terrain of the Bear Peninsula. Maldron Hotel, we've teamed up with them all this week and every day we've got an overnight stay for two people at the Maldron Hotel, which is located in the heart of Cork uh, City Centre. It is an overnight stay for two 
two people, bed and a breakfast. And based on that, we are getting you to identify famous uh, duos. You need to identify the second half of the duo I'm about to call out and you need to text or WhatsApp, but you need to put in your name and address as well, please. That is important. So today's famous duo is Thelma and... Beep, beep, beep. Who's the second name? A famous female duo. Thelma and... If you know the answer, along with your name and address, please start texting and WhatsApping 0862103103. And from all of the correct answers... We will select our winner who will be making plans to head into Cork City Centre for a lovely break in the Maldron Hotel. The fact it's based in the city centre, it is the perfect place for a break in the Rebel County. Who is our famous duo today? Thelma and... Get texting and WhatsApping, please, 0862103103. John Paul, by the way, is taking calls, particularly looking for calls that you might have for Jane Pickett, our resident vet. If you're going to text in a pet question, hold off because it'll get lost in the middle of all of the entries for the Maldon Hotel. But you can call John Paul. He'll uh, take your question at 0818103103. Let me go back to the large amount of commentary that we've had in this morning, be it on the phone on texts and WhatsApps and a lot of emails in as well. Uh, firstly, when I was talking in the last hour with Mika, who was talking about her feature film based on Hungry Hill out on the Beira Peninsula, and it's all uh, focusing on sheep farmers on, who work in a very, very rugged uh, terrain. And so it's a non-fiction uh, feature film that's going to be on in the the, the Galway Film flower. We wish her luck uh, with it and look forward very much to when she gets to screen it locally. I think a lot of people locally would like to go along to see it, but it's simply called uh, Hungry Hill. Somebody has sent in a text to say, Patricia, don't forget the 1943 Daphne de Maurier book was also called Hungry Hill. It was based on the Coppermines family, the Puxleys. And you're right, yeah, I'd, I'd forgotten about that. That was a famous book by the uh, British author uh, Daphne de Maurier. Um, she actually, uh, the the reason why she wrote the book, it's a, anyone who's read Daphne de Maurier's Hungry Hill will know it's a family saga and it's based on the history of the Irish ancestors of her friend and her friend was a Christopher Puxley. So it was based on the uh, Coppermines family, the Puckleys. So well remembered. Uh, thank you for that. 0818 103 103. Now let me, where do I go to the start of all these comments that have been coming in uh, based on... Um, RTE. Okay, I've got to go right up to the top of this page. Bear with me for one sec and I will start uh, with Dennis. Did I read that one? I didn't. Um, Let's start with Jeremy in Dunmanwick. He gave John Paul uh, a call and he says, after watching the committee meeting yesterday, Jeremy in Dunmanway's question is, are we all going a little bit over the top on all of this? If this was commercial money used by RTE, then what is the problem? If it was public money that came in from the exchequer and came in from the licence fee, yeah, they need to be held account, uh, particularly if they're spending money on flip flops. Was it public money? Was it private money from advertising? Uh, Jeremy reckons that needs to be broken down. But I suppose the problem with RTE being the public broadcaster and the fact that they get the bulk of their money, over half their money does come from the licence fee. It's all one pot. So I imagine it's very hard to work out, well, if we use that money, we can only use that for public service broadcasting. And if that has come in through advertising, we can only use that for commercial 
items. You know what I mean? It's just, it's one pot that they are working from. There isn't two separate sets of accounts. But maybe, maybe Jeremy, maybe that's the way they need to go. Dennis in Shannon said the fact that the executives in RTE know that they can spend money with the backup of the public purse. Surely that is all wrong. The organisation needs to be run like a business and then outline their public service broadcasts and make sure the aspect of broadcasting is maintained and that it is fully resourced. Kate by email says, Hi Patricia, like much of the country, I'm beyond angry at the spending within RTE. There are so many people across Irish society that have made enormous sacrifices with household budgets. I, my own example, I'm a female, 68, living alone, have a number of health issues. And this past year, I have lived without heating. Why? I don't have the money needed to sort out my heating system and like many others, just get on with my daily living. Like thousands of others, I don't ask anyone for help. And by the way, before you suggest it, I won't ask anyone for help. I don't expect anyone to sort out my household issues, including including the problems I have with my heating. Yet RTE appears to be using public money as their personal ATM. I think RTE management and directors should be dismissed. Sorry for the ramble. And that wasn't a ramble. But thank you for that, uh, Katie. And I hope you get the issue sorted out with your heating uh, system because it's tough. It's OK at the moment and when we've got mild weather, but it's tough in the winter months uh, to be running a house without heating. Fidel Mazin McCroom uh, says, Deputy Christopher O'Sullivan mentioned that workers down the line should have their wages increased. This is when I asked Christopher how he felt about a pay cap. But says Fidelma. I feel it should be the other way around. It should be those on the top should have their wages lowered towards the ones on the bottom of the ladder. At the end of the day, they're all doing a job and they should be treated equally. Another email in, this one from Paddy. We should be extremely careful about damaging the commercial side of RTE. The commercial uh, manager, and that's um, Geraldine O'Leary, outlined yesterday that she is worth her weight in gold. She brought in 1.6 billion euro and she spent less than 1% of that on entertaining clients, etc. and agencies. Included in that was the office in London. Well, she didn't have an office in London. She rented a... Uh, a private, went to a private, became a member of a private members uh, club in London. But okay, I accept what you're saying. She used it as an office. Anyway, back to Paddy's email. The TDs should be separating out the commercial side of the business from the public services side. If all the income from the commercial side dries up at RTE, all those screaming today about their television license will be looking at having to pay a hundred percent or more increase. Why? Because they need to ups, offset the drop in income to RTE. And I suppose that is one of the arguments, Paddy, that's been put forward. Does the government need to look at the model of how they fund RTE? Should it be, should it all come out of the exchequer, which will be made up then of the TV license money and money from the exchequer? But you, you could be right if they go down that route of just public funding and telling them they're not allowed uh, to take any kind of revenue from ads, then the possibility is that the TV licence would have to increase and it could go up by double. You're certainly right. Thank you for that, uh, Paddy. Louise Bantier wants to comment on Moya Doherty, who was the former RTE chair who attended uh, yesterday. Uh, Louise said, I wasn't happy with Moya Doherty and her appearance at the committee yesterday. I felt when she answered the questions at times, she seemed to be smiling and smirking. I felt she thought she was better and over everybody in the room. It is that exact type of attitude and behaviour that has led us into this uh, situation. 
John in Butterman said, how can the TDs and senators sit in that committee asking RTE about their money when they themselves are on huge sums of money? And then they're asking an RTE executive about how much money they make. Is it not a case of the kettle calling the pot uh, black? 0818103103. Hi, Patricia, by WhatsApp. I've just received my TV licence renewal this morning. There isn't a hope. I'll put my hand in my pocket of my hard-earned wages to line RTE's pockets anymore. I feel RTE are a disgrace. Someone else says, Patricia, why did Anne O'Leary, who is on the RTE authority, that RTE board, uh, why was she not present in the Oireachtas hearing yesterday? She was there last week. She actually was. She was on the camera. We only got to see her once or twice. She was in a meeting room and I'm assuming they just didn't have room for her. Last week as well, they had two people who were sitting in an adjoining meeting room and they had them up on the camera. I mean, I think they're at a distinct distinct disadvantage when they're in another room trying to interact through Zoom or whatever it was, um, at Google Teams. It's just hard to interact, but she was, yes, she was there. And Micah says, uh, Patricia, how are you? I was listening to David from Holly Hill, who spoke with you earlier. I thought the line from yesterday's committee meeting was the commercial director, and the commercial director was Geraldine uh, O'Leary, who said, it is my truth, deputy. And she sure hit the nail on the head when she quoted her mental health has suffered and her personal privacy has suffered. I thought the former... Uh, the former CFO the former financial officer was fantastic I'm trying to get all the names right that was Breda Breda O'Keefe she was brilliant I thought she was fantastic and the current financial officer uh, Richard uh, Collins I thought she hung him out to dry the board were definitely more on the defensive yesterday than they were last week Imelda Munster of Sinn Féin was definitely ahead of the pack yesterday says Michael uh, well done to all and Margaret says hi Patricia you know what drives me mad when I think of all those wonderful nurses and doctors who worked so hard during all of Covid times when all this was going on and they work right throughout the year and then to see what is happening in RTE Margaret not happy with that okay a sample of some of the calls the texts whatsapps and the emails that we have been receiving all morning people are enraged I suppose is the best way of describing it 0818 103 103 you can stop texting and whatsapping us on our Maldron Hotel competition I asked you to name to complete the famous duo today's was Thelma and Thelma and Louise and that was a terrific movie uh, wasn't it? It's one of those movies you could watch uh, again. So our winner today and heading off for an overnight stay for two people, bed and breakfast to the Maldron at the heart of the Cork City Centre making it a perfect break in the Rebel County. It is Evelyn Harrington and Evelyn is in Ahakista. Congratulations to you, Evelyn of Ahakista. You can pack your bags and get ready to head to the Maldron uh, Hotel. We have one more of those overnight stays to give away way tomorrow and again we'll do the similar thing we will ask you to complete a well-known uh, duo in the meantime we will now free up the text and the whatsapps for any questions that you might have for Jane Pickett our resident uh, vet you can contact us at 0862 103 103 
The C103 Cork Diary. With Cork County Council delivering roads and housing, community and business supports all across the county. See corkcoco.ie. And there's just a couple of days left for the Marymount pop-up shop, which has opened in Kilbritton Parish Hall. All proceeds going to Marymount and it's open from 10 in the morning until 8 at night. Kildallery Hillfest is continuing and today ladies summer summer soiree doors open at half six it features daily diva diary and orla MacAndrew. that's at eight o'clock and the Kildallery community development their weekly lotto draw always on a thursday so it's on today at four nine thousand three hundred euro the United Rugby Championship Trophy is coming to Skibbereen Rugby Club this afternoon at 2. It's a great opportunity for all rugby enthusiasts and supporters to meet Gavin and Neem Coombs and to celebrate their accomplishments. All are welcome from 2 o'clock uh, today. And live music in the Marquis in Kildallery tomorrow night is with Pascal Brennan, while there'll be social dancing in the Marion Hall in Ballonhasic tomorrow night. Music by Mike Condon. Dancing from 9 to 12 midnight. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. For motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie. Bill and Clonakilty has been on to say the what's going on at RT. He feels it's a drop in the ocean compared to what's going on behind the scenes within the HSC. He feels the waste of money spent within the HSC has to be looked at. He says, for example, there's 108 people within the HSE earning over €200,000 each. But I would like to think, Bill, that many of them are consultants. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what the breakdown is. Um, There's also thousands of euro worth of vaccines that had to be dumped. So there's so many other areas of the public service that really the Public Accounts Committee and other Rochester's committees need to concentrate on. Bill feels that the TDs are happy out with doing this and investigating RTE because they're due to go on their summer vacation. Yeah, the summer recess is next from next week, isn't it? And he said it's taking the eye off talks of anything else like homelessness, the housing situation or anything else like that. All the focus is on RTE and Bill reckons that that is working well for the government. Well, they are doing other things as well because I was reading in the papers today and I was uh, I was saying to John Fall before I came on air this morning when I saw it, it kind of ties in with what we, we mentioned uh, this week when we were talking about the USC charge. And somebody was saying that the USE charge, they'd love to see the USE charge scrapped in the next budget. And we ran a little bit of an Insta uh, poll ourselves and it came out 96% of people, I mean, no real surprise. It's like the turkeys voting for Christmas. 96% of people said, yes, they'd love to see the USE charge uh, scrapped. But 4% wanted it retained. I'd love to chat to the 4%. But anyway, we don't know who they are because it's it was an Insta poll done online. But then I read in the papers uh, today because all of the government parties are talking amongst themselves about the next budget and how the next budget should look and what should be included and not included. And I did mention yesterday that the Fianna Fáil TDs and senators, they were all having a parliamentary party meeting and it seems that many of them pushed the Finance Minister Michael McGrath to cut the universal social charge. Now, not scrap it, but they wanted cut in next October's uh, budget. Uh, now, the universal social charge, that came in during the economic crash in the last decade. And remember, we were told it would only be temporary. And here we are into a new decade and it's still uh, there. The USC has been earmarked by Fianna Fáil uh, that if they could, did, 
did reduce it, it would cut taxes for lower paid workers. And that obviously would be as opposed to giving a tax cut to the middle income earners, which are the ones that the Fianna, Fianna Gael party are always talking about and Leo Varadkar is always talking about that squeezed uh, middle. It's understood that a number of re- representatives yesterday raised this issue at the parliamentary party. Now, including, I was looking down through the names, some of them are our own TDs. The Cork North Central TD, Patrick O'Sullivan, was one of the ones that called for it, as did the Cork East uh, Deputy James O'Connor. Now, other things that were discussed and were mentioned, and they were just all put on the table as to what people wanted. The Carlo Kilkenny TD, John McGuinness, he called for the introduction of mortgage interest relief. And he's saying, particularly aimed at the large number of homeowners who now have mortgages, which through no fault of their own, are now owned by vulture funds and they're paying more than anyone else. And many of them are paying more than 7% uh, interest rate. And it was good to see again one of our own. Uh, call, the call was echoed by Deputy Andreas Moynihan, the Cork Northwest West Fall Doll Deputy. He also went on to call for free travel to be extended to people who have epilepsy and who have lost their driving licence. And I think that's not a bad one on behalf of Andreas because... I would have heard and, and I would have known people over the years who, in, you know, developed epilepsy as adults. And of course, once you de- develop epilepsy, you can't drive a car. I think you've got to be a year epilepsy a year free without uh, an epileptic seizure before you get your driving licence back and that can be really tough on people so maybe for that court people give them free travel so at least that they can travel around on buses and um, uh, trains also a lot of the Dublin no surprise the Dublin TDs they were looking for a significant increase in the 500 euro rent tax credit some of them were saying that it should be doubled or even tripled. Now, that would be of good news for anyone renting around the country, but particularly applicable to people in Dublin, because we know in Dublin they are paying huge uh, rents. Now, Minister for Finance Michael McGrath sat and listened to what all of his fellow TDs and senators had to say. And he told his party colleagues, according to the papers today, that he would bring in a fair and a progressive tax package but he said he has to mind the uh, economy. And speaking to the media ahead of the meeting, the Thornton leader of Fianna Fáil, Micheál Martin, he said that the upcoming budget needed to be fair and it needed to reflect the needs and the concerns of all of the Irish people. So they're trying to be as fair as possible. But there was also a Fianna Gael Parliamentary Party meeting last night and seemingly at that, uh, the Taoiseach Leo Varadkar said the country can have a good tax package in the budget for 2024 that will get announced in August. They're saying what they've set aside for the tax side of it is £1.1 And he once again reiterated that all workers should benefit, but the focus he still feels should be on the middle income workers and the so-called squeeze middle. So like, there's a lot more to go. I know they've set out the parameters with a summer economic statement and, you know, they've set out roughly what they're going to spend and, you know, that that, that 1.1 million will go on taxes. Now, they haven't set the detail down as to how it will break up. But looking, just already looking at that, what Fianna Fáil want and what Fianna Gael want. And of course, you're going to have to wait and see because we also have the Greens uh, in power. But it does smack to me that they're going to have to meet somewhere in uh, the middle. But I think if, uh, and, and I do think the USC, uh, everyone pays USC. So if there was some kind of cut in the USC, you know, it would certainly lower 
uh, people on lower incomes would uh, benefit but the squeeze middle would benefit as well because they also pay at USC 0818103103 and just a quick mention to a survey and I'd love to know if anybody would fess up and, and say yes I'm one of those it's a survey that's found a quarter of householders don't know where the boiler is located in their house. Now, that kind of scared me because you're meant to get your boiler and you should get your boiler serviced every single year for 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 one reason, it runs more efficiently. But also, if you don't get your boiler serviced, I had a friend of mine who many, many years ago didn't realise that she was meant to get her boiler serviced and the thing blew up. Now, luckily, it was out in, in an outhouse. It wasn't uh, close to the house. So it's dangerous not to get your boiler serviced. So I couldn't believe that a quarter of householders, when they were asked, where is your boiler? They scratched their head and said, I, I don't know where the boiler is in my house. It was research carried out by a general insurance company in the United Kingdom. Now I know it was a UK survey but I'm assuming maybe maybe if it was done here we, we Irish would be the same or maybe all of us would be able to identify where our boiler is. It also showed that 37% of people would not be able to find their electricity meter and again it must be people who have, they don't have the electricity a meter man calling to their door or else maybe the meter is outside but 37 percent said when they were asked where's your electricity meter haven't got a clue 31 percent admitted they don't know where the fuse box uh, is <laughs> that one astounded uh, me and, and and a local builder commenting on this survey says the fuse box is usually the first port of call for most power issues at home so people should know where their fuse box is because if the lights suddenly go off or if your plugs suddenly don't start working it could just be something as simple as a trip switch gone in your fuse box. So I'd love to know, would anyone uh, like to admit, do you know where your boiler is? Do you know where your electric meter is? And more importantly, do you know where your fuse box is? 0818 103 103. Let's take a break and we're back having your pet questions answered by Jane Pick. You're listening to C103's Cork Today podcast. Phone and text lines are currently closed. We're off to the Islandwood Veterinary Hospital in Newmarket, part of the Mill Street Veterinary Group, where Jane Pickett uh, joins me. Good morning to you, Jane. Uh, good afternoon. Good morning, Patricia. Uh, how are you, do- how are you doing? On, on a wet day, I suppose this is a kind of a relevant uh, question. Somebody said, out for the walk this morning uh, with our border collie and we got caught out in a downpour of rain. I've come, come home and he is stinking of that wet dog smell. How do you get rid of that? Oh, story of our lives as dog owners. It's always a challenge, isn't it? We have to live in a rainy country. Yeah. Um, yeah, that smell, it's, you know, it's, it's a really difficult one. What I'd say is, you know, we're in the height of summer now. We just had a little downpour. Hopefully the weather won't last. But I would arm yourself with, uh, with a shampoo so that when you get home and you have that really bad wet dog smell, it might be best just to pop them into the bath or pop them into the shower and give them a good suds up with a dog safe shampoo. And generally, I suppose the, the, the wet dog smell that we get is, I suppose, it, it's pretty much just bringing out the smell that may already be there. It's kind of like the dog's body odour to a degree. Um, so if you give them a good old wash when they get home, if they have that mega wet dog smell, they'll be lovely and warm. Um, firstly and you'll be able to give them a good blast and dry off afterwards um, but it'll hopefully get rid of the wet dog smell and replace it with something else nice yeah, so what I'd normally yeah. recommend is don't however tempted you are use human shampoo is the one thing I would say because it's built for a very different skin pH um, than our dogs and cats it's very much like let's say adult human and baby shampoo they're a little bit different so you wouldn't want to go mixing up human shampoo with dog shampoo um, so contact your local vet sometimes they'll have like dog safe shampoos or your local pet shop and they'll be able to, to guide you in the right direction 
I had a friend of mine who was in the shower and she picked up the dog shampoo uh, by mistake and it was only after she had washed her hair and she said she had the greatest shine ever on her on her hair. <laughs> <laughs> she didn't continue using it but she said she had a great shine. She couldn't get over it. Okay. Now, Martina's been on to us uh, with uh, an email in question for Jane, please. I have a two-year-old golden retriever who has developed a fear of going to the vet since she was neutered. It was about eight months ago. He gets very anxious and stressed any time we take him to the vet. He won't let the vet near him for any form of an examination. He's due to get his vaccinations, but again, he got so stressed, we had to abandon the appointment and rearrange a new date. It's very sad to see the dog get so stressed. He's a very pleasant and placid dog, but just gets so fearful when we get anywhere near the vets. Is there any way of getting a vaccination in a tablet form that we could administer at home? Or is there any way I can prepare him for a trip to the vet? Okay. Oh, it breaks my heart to hear this because, you know, the patients that we see generally as vets, we have the privilege of seeing happy patients running through the door a lot of the time for their preventative visits. But we do generally have a few on our books, every practice has, that are really nervous to come in. And sometimes that'll have happened after they've been ill for a period and been hospitalised, for example, and they kind of associate that feeling of not feeling so well with being in the building and then having vets and nurses around them. Or it can happen after a surgery, for example. Um, because, you know, it's, it's, it's a big day out having a neutering surgery for, for a, a young dog. So it's a lot of new experiences they may not have had before. Um, and so it also, can I say, shows what a great memory they have. Mm, they do have a really great memory. Yeah. Um, and they're very clever at these things. They can know you're leaving for the vet before you even leave the house a lot of time, I think. Um, I think really what we need to try and do is replace some of those kind of feelings of fear and anxiety that your pet has with happier ones. And that's probably not going to happen all of a sudden. It sounds like your vet did a really brilliant job trying to, you know, put them at ease and, you know, do as much as they could, but to not push it too far. And, you know, obviously we need to get his vaccinations done to keep him protected um, from all the serious diseases that that guards against. But balancing that with not making his fear and anxiety worse. What I would say is have a chat to your vet. They're probably well aware that he's a bit worried inside the building now, given your previous experience. But have a chat to them about whether they do happy visits or something like that. So let's say, for example, in our practice, we sometimes have pets that are nervous, anxious, fearful, come in for a little scheduled visit with a nurse or a vet, and we're not going to do anything medical. We'll just have them in, have them walk around the consult room, maybe stand up on the examination table, have some treats, a little pat or rub, be told they're the best boy or girl in the world, and then they'll go home again. And sometimes we'll do that a number of times in a row. It's usually quick, and most practices, if you ask, will facilitate something like that. Um, and that can, over time, take away a little bit of the fear associated with being in the building, being in that environment, being around those smells again. And slowly you'll be able to work up to having a bit of an examination done and then hopefully get back to normal again. What I will say is, though, if your pet is really, really fearful, have a chat to your vet about it because there are medications that we can give pets sometimes in advance of them coming to the clinic. Now, this is not appropriate in every single situation and your own vet knowing your situation and your pet is going to be the best person to advise you on whether that's suitable or not. But there are some calming medications, not necessarily sedatives, but they can take away the anxiety that sometimes we would prescribe for patients who are particularly fearful and let's say have a procedure that they need doing this that's in their in their best interest, but you know, is a bit time sensitive. So have a chat with your vet, but I say try and prioritise the happy visits, maybe bring them in once in a while, but make sure you you work closely with your practice to make sure it's a, 
a time that they can facilitate or, or a service that they can do. But best of luck, I think it may just take a little bit of time to get back on track. Somebody says, could you go into the vet's practice and just buy the vaccination and administer it yourself? No, no. I wouldn't recommend that. No, would you? No, okay. so, yeah, so unfortunately the vaccinations, they, they, they are prescription only. And okay. I think the important thing is a lot more happens at a vaccination appointment than just giving the vaccination. So it's their annual health exam. Yeah, yeah, although check-up. you or I, yeah, although you or I may not visit the doctor once a year for an annual health checkup. We, we can tell somebody if we don't feel well. We can tell somebody if there's something going on. Whereas our pets, unfortunately, they don't have that voice. They don't have that privilege. So it's really, the annual visit is really super essential from a health point of view, never mind the vaccine, although that's important in its own right, to make sure that we're picking up on the early signs of any problems so that we can get ahead of them um, and get out there and for the treatment or management if it needs be. So it's really important to come in for your vaccinations to your vet. And unfortunately, vaccines, let's say the, the, the annual vaccine that we all know and love that prevents the, the major serious diseases is only available in, in the needle vaccination. There are okay. other vaccinations out there that are, do different things like the canine cough vaccine and sometimes they can be given orally, but they are very different and protect against very different diseases. So unfortunately, no an injection have, is essential. You have to go in. You have to bring the dog mm-hmm. in. Unfortunately, my Jack Russell says another listener is up to date with all of the vaccinations, etc. He seems to be eating at his paws and scratching a lot. Is there anything I could do? No, bless him. I think he sounds like he's itchy. To be honest, um, so inviting at the feet is kind of the equivalent of us itching the easiest part of our body to get to because their paws are right there in front of them. So if they're generally itchy on their body. Sometimes we'll notice that they'll bite their feet, but they might be itchy all over. Just that's the bit that they can get to easily. Um, I would suspect that it could be something really common. Uh, so it could just be, I suppose, parasites are at the top of the list sometimes. Sometimes we can have allergies, something out in the environment. A lot of us have hay fever around this time of year. Dogs don't exactly get hay fever, but they can get allergies to different kinds of, of um, or, or let's say different kinds of allergens out in the environment to do with plants. Or it could be something like a bacterial overgrowth or a yeast overgrowth. The really important thing is there's a number of different things that could be going on. Many of them are very, very manageable. It's really important to take your pet now before it gets any worse to the vet so that they can assess the situation and maybe do a little bit of testing. Sometimes it's quite common that vets will take a little sample of, let's say, in between the toes with a little bit of tape to look at under a microscope, for example. Every vet does it a little bit differently, but there are ways and means that we have to getting to the bottom of the situation and helping your pet get rid of that itch because it's really quality of life. Nobody likes seeing their pet have, have a really a stressful, distressing itch um, that they can't quite get to. So it's really important just to make sure they're comfy. Um, and get them some help for that. Well, we all know ourselves if you have an itch, you nearly, you nearly go mad mm. with it. It's, it's uh, shocking. Uh, somebody said on that poor dog with the phobia to, to the vet, uh, bringing the dog in several times to get acquainted and established is a fantastic idea uh, before treatment. Well done to Jane on that advice. And a Bantry listener says, could you please ask Jane any tips on introducing a new puppy to an older dog. The older dog is 11 and at the moment is showing signs he absolutely hates the new puppy. Okay. <laughs> oh, it's always a tough situation, I suppose. What I would say is, you know, don't lose heart. Bear with it. It'll probably settle down. But the one thing I think that I suppose the biggest top tip I could give you is make sure that your older dog has some space and peace and quiet and isn't continually confronted with the puppy. You know, kind of like just keeping him around the puppy 24 hours a day, immersion therapy, it doesn't work very well. 
that little dog will need time and rest to sleep. He's kind of in his older years, isn't he? He's well established in the household and now he has this young whippersnapper coming in invading his space. And that can be great. Some some older dogs really adapt well and it gives them kind of a new lease of life to have a new buddy. But others are a little bit more resistant to the idea. So I would probably try introducing the puppy in small doses to your older dog and then maybe keeping the puppy in a separate area from your older dog for the, the majority of the day and gradually increasing that time. Now, obviously, that's not going to be feasible in every situation, in every household, but you can do things to, to try and separate them a little bit. I think for puppies, doing things like crate training is really, really great um, because they that kind of becomes their little den that they can go and uh, chill out and that's their safe space. But also, importantly, if the puppy's in the crate for part of the day, it means that your older dog gets a break. So I think it's just a case of slowly, slowly increasing the time there together. Um, and I'm sure things will adjust. There's always going to be a little period of upheaval when you have a new pet in the household, even if there's not a huge, huge age difference. But it can be a little bit tougher when you have a golden oldie in the house. So best of luck. Yeah, and, 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 and I assume feeding separately, uh, Jane, because oh, the older yes, dog absolutely. would be... Yeah, yeah. I, I think that goes, that goes without question. Absolutely keep all of their resources separate. So... Feed them in a different place, totally out of sight of each other, not just across the room, different rooms. Give them separate water bowls, separate toys. Don't expect them to share because their their smells will be kind of intermingling yet and they won't be comfortable kind of sharing things yet. So make sure they just have all of their own stuff. OK, but they will get on eventually. Sure. Jane, as always, thank you for that. Have a lovely week. We'll chat next Thursday. You too. Thank Thanks you a million. Much. That is Jane Pickett of the Islandwood Veterinary Hospital in Newmarket. It is part of the Mill Street Veterinary Group. A text in from a listener saying, does anybody know when is the annual mass in Kilcrumper Cemetery in Formoy for this year? We've had a number of masses we've been calling out on the community uh, diary. Uh, I'll just flick through the community diary. Kilcrumper isn't on it, so uh, I don't know anybody involved in the organising of the mass for Kilcrumper Cemetery. If you could let us know when it's on, please, because obviously a listener would like to go along. Cork County Council have been on to say due to an ESB outage in the area the Dursey cable car is currently out of service. Now I have no more details of when that is going to be back but I'm assuming if there's an ESB outage as soon as the ESB is back do I assume the cable car will be back up and running but as of now Dursey cable car is out of uh, service and just a call in um, this is to do I suppose with the TV licence and RTE and how annoyed people people are about having to pay their TV licence with everything that they're hearing about um, everything that they're hearing coming out of of RTE and there is you know that people are saying oh I'm never going to pay a TV licence again and I keep saying to people you know if, you know, obviously that's it's going to be a personal choice for people but you've got to be so careful because the legislation it's by law it says we have to pay our TV licence whether we like paying it or not and Mary was on to say back in 2018 her daughter was extremely unwell and obviously she Mary at the time was under a lot of pressure you know mainly because her daughter was sick and she said her television licence ran out and financially she was struggling and whatever but she said what she started to do was to get the stamps so that she could eventually pay for her television uh, licence. Now she said she eventually got in to pay it even though she was registered that she didn't have a licence and I'm assuming perhaps even had a call from somebody to say because that's what we're hearing from people when you don't pay your TV licence once you've paid it once you're registered you're on the system and then people get an, a gentle reminder usually a knock on the door to say from the TV licence inspector man or woman to say you need to pay your TV licence because followed up with a letter and then eventually if you don't do that you can end up in court. Anyway, Mary said uh, she paid it 
But she said at the time it was said to her, you were very lucky that you just paid it in time. You very nearly ended up in Limerick uh, prison. So Mary said what she was trying to do her very best at the time, worrying and looking after her sick daughter, trying to buy the stamps whenever she had a spare few uh, bob. And she said she really was struggling and that was back in 2018. And then she said yesterday to realise while that sh- that was happening to her in her life in 2018, she said to hear yesterday that RTE was spending €5,000 on flip-flops with everything what I was going through. Mary says she feels so annoyed by it now. She feels she and others should be entitled to compensation for the anguish they went through just trying to get the money together for the licence fee while Mary feels money was being squandered. Ed says, correct me if I'm wrong Patricia, but the TV licence is for having a TV. It's not just for RTE, absolutely. And someone else uh, says, uh, hi Patricia, we just paid our TV licence two weeks ago. To be honest, we're sorry now we did after all this scandal. I said to the hubby last night, if a million people, for example, didn't pay their television licence, they couldn't take them all to court. They couldn't put them all in to jail. And that might still be the case. Watch this space. OK, that's where I leave you for today. My thanks to John Paul McNamara for producing. Uh, Nick is with you for the afternoon and we'll be back with you for the final one of the week uh, tomorrow morning. Onto the line, Patricia Messenger. Very good afternoon. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie. The number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com.